in that respect, developing something that's going to be a long-term prevention, that's where the vaccines come into play. Uh, what we can do, hopefully, is develop something that will protect people initially from, the, from these diseases. Welcome to the Leiden Bioscience Park podcast, where we talk about what the organizations in Leiden do to beat COVID. From vaccines to food, we discuss it all. The different initiatives right here in this podcast. My name is Joop van den Ereband and with me is Hans Stanke, now retired, but a renowned scientist in the field of molecular cell biology at the Leiden University Medical Center. Together, we will interview scientists, entrepreneurs, and innovators. We won't stop asking questions until we've found out what COVID is exactly, what it does to our bodies, and what our guests are doing to battle this pandemic. Our guest today is Erik van der Veer. Erik was born and raised in Canada. He moved to the Netherlands to study chemistry at the University of Amsterdam, and after these studies, back to Canada to do his PhD, and then again back to the Netherlands to join the research group at the nephrology department, where he started his own research in cardiovascular uh, settings. He was interested in RNA and RNA binding proteins, and after a while he thought, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm also a scientist, I have to start my own company, and he founded his company two years ago. Eric, very welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Hans and Joop. Nice to be here. Eric, can you help me here? I know and have heard a lot about DNA, but Hans just mentioned you work on RNA. Is that a similar thing or is it different? Can you help explain me this difference? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll definitely give it a try. Um, DNA, of course, is, uh, is really important information that's in included in almost every cell of our bodies uh, and all organisms for that matter. Uh, DNA contains all of the essential information. Uh, what happens then is that uh, this, uh, if you were to imagine it as being a book, this is then going to be read, but there's uh, some parts of that book that you don't necessarily need. And so RNA, in essence, is a, a translation of that book into something that usually contains both useful as well non-useful information sometimes. Depending on whether or not you're healthy or diseased, your body will decide what parts of that uh, translation it's going to need. It's going to take out of that certain words and merge that together. And then what you get is, a, is an mRNA. So that all of those words initially are a pre-mRNA. And then what you end up getting is an mRNA, which contains the essential parts for that moment. And that gets turned into a protein. And the protein is what goes and does the work. And up until now, people had, for a long time, even if you look at textbooks that students still today look at, there's primarily a DNA to RNA to protein, whereas there's really a, a part that's being missed in all that story, and that is that the, there's pre-mRNA, and that plays a key role in determining how that's uh, put together uh, for uh, healthy and disease situations. If you're healthy, you have a very, uh, let's say, A, B, C, D, E approach, and if you're diseased, then maybe B will be left out, and so you have A, C, D, E. And that leads to a very different protein with very different functions oftentimes. Sometimes it's the same. It could be working slightly better or slightly worse, that type of stuff. All right. Um, 
Your previous work was at the nephrology department, LUMC. Yeah. I'm, I'm triggered. What made you decide to start your company? What was it? Was it? I don't think it was the what happened in Wuhan. What was it? SARS in two thousand three. Was it MERS? What was the drive to leave your fundamental research work and start this company? Well, actually, uh, Hans, uh, that goes back to around two thousand and fourteen. Uh, I'd been working on as uh, as dis discussed. Uh, very fundamental research in trying to better understand, as I just mentioned, that healthy and diseased situation in various cell types. And uh, it was all very relevant, but I was challenged by uh, Professor uh, Tom Rablink at the department to see how I could take that fundamental knowledge and, and, and make it more translational, something that patients could benefit from. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, at an open day at the LUMC, I was uh, uh, looking through a microscope that a, a nephrologist, Daria Sunvala, uh, had prepared and had a, uh, a biopsy with, uh, uh, from a patient that had BK virus in their kidney. And this is something that happens in uh, kidney transplantation patients. They can get this viral activation. I was intrigued and thought, hey, maybe you know, we could use some kind of RNA therapeutics to try and target that virus. And uh, that's basically where it all started. Uh, from that point on, uh, started working towards RNA therapeutics in the setting of viral targeting. And uh, with by 2018, uh, that already led us to start thinking, okay, maybe we can start up a company that's going to uh, focus specifically on novel viral specific targeting approaches. And uh, that came to fruition in 2019 when I left the LUMC and started up the company, Hybridized Therapeutics. So you talk about targeting, yeah. but does that mean you have the virus in your crosshairs or how do I interpret targeting? So one of the advantages, but also disadvantages of RNA therapies is that you have uh, the ability to look at the sequence of a virus um, and you can be very specific in that sense. So you know exactly, no different than COVID-19, um, once it became uh, clear what the sequence was of uh, COVID-19 and the similarities that it had, of course, to SARS back in 2003, um, there was an ability to go uh, and, and research, okay, what is targetable, what is not targetable? Um, and when you have that sequence, you can start saying, okay, well, those are regions that are very similar between the two. And similarity oftentimes means that it's important. Uh, once you've identified those important regions, you can start saying, okay, can we target those regions? Is there something that we can design, be it an RNA, be it a protein that is subsequently going to uh, target certain uh, other proteins, for example, or uh, small molecules that will prevent that, uh, the proteins from binding to certain regions? There's a lot of options that you have. RNA is very beautiful because it binds specifically to, in a complementary fashion, to those viral RNAs and can thereby prevent them from actually being able to do their normal work. Uh, so that's the targeting that I'm talking about. So if you're successful at targeting it and you can make an RNA that actually targets the, this virus, uh, does that mean you disable it or does it, does it do anything else? Well, there's multiple approaches actually. You, you could, uh, one is that by binding, sometimes it can lead to uh, the activation of certain proteins within the cell, one of these being called RNAs H, but that's not really necessarily important. But RNAs H is like a scissor. It identifies when RNA and RNA interact with each other in these situations, 
um, you can say basically if there's a, a, um, a, a change that you make to the, the composition of that RNA therapeutic that you've de developed, you can actually make it that the cell recognizes that and say, hey, this isn't right. Something's wrong here. And those scissors will come along and cut that RNA into pieces, right at that, that place where you have that interaction or that binding. And so that's a way of degrading. The other option is that your RNA can bind and it disturbs uh, the proper, let's say, folding of how that RNA is going to be assembled. So RNAs are not just these straight lines. They're not just, you know, flat roads. They're just like the, uh, the, the Alps, for example. They have all kinds of shapes and what else not. And so if you can prevent that, uh, that, that shape from coming into it in the proper fashion, that can also disturb how the RNA is going to survive. Um, and in doing so, you can really disturb uh, the, how long that RNA is going to, to, to live and can get broken down within the cell. So the cells are very uh, fine-tuned in terms of realizing when something's right or something's wrong. And when something's wrong, they sense that very quickly and target it for, 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 for or we'll, we'll cut it up. A couple of weeks ago, there, there was a, a review article in one of the leading uh, newspapers uh, comparing all the vaccine technologies. And there are different approaches uh, based on DNA, based on a weakened virus that are, I'm sure you know all about it. Um, your approach, uh, targeting RNA, is completely different. Uh, can you make a fair assessment? What are the pros and cons of your approach compared to the traditional vaccine development? Well, Hans, uh, I mean, a vaccine, I think that's what we're all hoping for. We all hope for uh, to be able to go to some kind of uh, clinic or hospital, get an injection, and know that we're going to be prevent, uh, uh, benefit long-term from such a therapy. I think we all know the advantages uh, of vaccination programs uh, for our children, for ourselves, for that matter, and uh, eradicating diseases that are highly problematic. The thing is, is that naturally these traditionally take quite a while to yeah. develop. They have uh, high costs. I'm not arguing that I don't know yet what ours will cost, but the benefit, as I just mentioned, of course, of a knowing the DNA sequences, you can get to work right away. And you can start identifying, as I mentioned, those conserved regions, those regions that become worthwhile to look at for targeting. And we can very quickly test whether or not these are going to be effective in terms of reducing the virus or not. A benefit, of course, also is the fact that uh, the vaccines that are currently being developed and naturally with the large number that are uh, being developed, we hope that there will be some that will be efficacious or effective. But maybe not. There might be people who are refractory to these vaccines who don't respond very well to it. What we need to make sure of, and this is the way I kind of, uh, what, why we called our, our as a first line of defense, is we need to also design medicines that are able to treat people that potentially could, uh, might not benefit from the vaccines. And we have other approaches for targeting coronavirus than just vaccines. Yeah. I think that's in the future something we really need to think about. What I see as a, as a potential big advantage of your approach, that it is very generic. So it's not only it's not only the SARS virus, and this won't be the last uh, pandemia. There will be more, 
And if your technology works, you know the sequence, that, that's a must and a given. But if you know the sequence and it is successful, you can develop your uh, oligonucleotides that bind and, and very quickly have an effective approach. And, uh, I, I fully agree. Uh, I don't want to give uh, competitors ideas on how they can outperform <laughs> us. But uh, to the same token, though, for a large number of viruses, the sequence is already known. And this provides us with exciting opportunities to expand our pipeline and to, to develop therapies for additional viruses um, with, with, with a multitude of, of opportunity. Um, with respect to coronavirus, as I mentioned, I think that the, uh, one of the key benefits is the, the speed and the flexibility that RNA provides. I think that that's uh, always uh, an advantage as compared to uh, antibodies, which are protein-based therapies. It's a step further down the path. RNA is, is, is elegantly simple in that respect. You need the sequence and you can get to work. You guys are talking about the sequence and the sequence seems very important. Um, what I'm wondering is the speed at which you're working here, when did you get this sequence? Was this, the pandemia started here in the Netherlands in March, I think, when Mark Rutte announced the first intelligent lockdown. Was that when you started your work? Uh, no, actually. Uh, already uh, coming out of uh, late December, when it was already clear that there was uh, the initial uh, signs that uh, there was something going on in China, uh, I was quite intrigued. Uh, naturally, being that we are an antiviral company, this type of news uh, piques your attention quite quickly. Um, and shortly thereafter, um, it would be probably about mid mid January. Uh, I uh, when basically when the uh, Hubei province was uh, undergoing a lockdown, uh, and approximately uh, an estimated, if I'm right, it was four, forty million people were being uh, put into lockdown. I thought this is uh, there's something serious going on there, and uh, it really made me think. Okay, how can we start as a company getting the ball rolling? on developing a therapy. Naturally, people were waiting for the sequence. This came quite quickly. Uh, already in January, this was uh, made available. And at that point, I contacted uh, Professor Eric Schneider um, and uh, Marjolaine Kickert at the uh, LUMC um, from the uh, Department of Medical Microbiology and said, okay, how can we, uh, let's get together and how can we put our heads together and try and see if we can use this technology that hybridized therapeutics was developing and start putting it towards uh, trying to see if we could get a therapy. Um, and in that respect, uh, Eric uh, Schneider had mentioned that back with SARS, he was already interested in the concept of antisense technology and RNA therapeutics uh, in terms of targeting, uh, targeting viruses. So he was definitely uh, uh, intrigued in that respect into the possibilities. Let's go to a practical situation. I can imagine if you start your research, huh, triggered by the things that we just discussed, uh, you can start with a pre-messenger RNA and develop an oligonucleotide and see how it binds. That's the very elementary work. But at a certain moment, you have to go to a test system. Um, what is your test system? Um, are you using cells that have been infected uh, with the virus and then produce the uh, the RNA? Or and, and what is your readout? How, how Give us a little feeling how you do your research. Sure. Um, we start naturally, uh, I think that it's important to realize that in, in science, you don't just right away go jumping onto uh, fully infected cells with uh, SARS-CoV-2 or what we know as, as COVID-19. 
So what you first do is you develop model systems, uh, screening assays. Uh, that's really important because it's uh, quicker um, and it can give you some, some initial insights. Developing therapies, of course, are very, can be very expensive. And so what you really quickly want to screen out is the good and bad actors. Um, these model systems oftentimes will give you that opportunity to identify uh, some of the therapies that might you know, really quickly demonstrate uh, that they work and uh, which ones aren't worth investigating any further. Can also give you these, these, these model systems, give you an, a, an opportunity to look at approaches, varying approaches to uh, targeting the virus. Some might be more effective than others. Um, and once you've uh, worked in, in that respect, and you might not start with uh, the full, not, not just the full virus, but you might start focusing on certain regions of the virus. Okay, well, if we think that this is really important, or uh, let's say the N protein or the M protein, or let's say the very most five prime region, which is all the way to the left of an RNA, which is perhaps too complex. But needless to say, it gives you, you start looking at various regions, what proves to be the most effective, and then you start moving on to taking the, the, the tricks that you've learned from those model systems, and then you might go take that step to the virus. And, 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 and the readout is the amount of protein that's translated. For instance, yeah, it could could it could be even sooner than that. You could already start looking at the uh, levels of RNA that are still yeah. around within the cells, and then you start looking at how much of the protein that comes out of that RNA is uh, is is being made, and subsequently you could even start looking at the amount of virus that's still being produced. So it's at multiple levels that you're really screening how effective your compound is. And the reason is because what you want to know is how quickly are we interfering in that process. That's really important to know that, okay, if we're starting early, does it still have effect on the next part of the process? And what you effectively want to know is, do you shut down virus production? Mm -hmm. That's really important. So, Your method sounds sort of like a Trojan horse, as in you're infecting the virus or you're bringing something into the virus and that destabilizes the virus itself. Is that a fair comparison or does it make no sense at all? No, I think that's a fairly reasonable assessment of, uh, of what you're trying to do. You're trying to bring something in that's going to interfere with how that virus is going to operate. Uh, in this situation, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's no different than, I'd say, uh, playing a game of Jenga. You're pulling out uh, at a certain point, you're basically looking to see what are the uh, most essential pieces before that whole tower is going to fall. Uh, what we're looking to do is introduce something into that system that's going to slowly but surely destabilize the virus and it's going to actually make it ineffective. So, Then what I want to know, because in the last podcast we talked uh, extensively about how there's differences between corona in the nose or corona in the lungs, and you're creating something that needs to locate this virus, find it, and, and go to the right organs. How do you make sure that your RNAs travel to the lungs instead of to the kidney, for instance? Well, I think it's important to realize that one of the inherent benefits of oligonucleotides is that they uh, naturally go to the kidneys. Um, and uh, something that was uh, quite uh, quickly identified was that uh, the coronavirus, uh, upon entering uh, humans and infecting humans, was uh, infecting actually multiple sites within the body. Uh, naturally, what you hear about the most in the newspaper is the fact that uh, the lungs are the primary site of infection, and this is undoubtedly true. Uh, however, there's a real possibility that 
these viruses. And this is something we don't quite know yet. Uh, what are the long-term effects of having coronavirus in your body? Yes, the short-term is very clear in many cases, especially in the initial wave. We saw, of course, the uh, uh, huge spike in ICU cases with uh, patients with severe lung problems and, of course, uh, a large number of deaths. Um, but what we're particularly interested in is whether or not these oligonucleotides alongside uh, delivering them to the lungs via aerosols, whether or not we could also just simply introduce them to uh, humans via the blood and have them uh, get into the kidneys and protect the kidneys or potentially the liver, for example. There's modifications you can make to RNAs and have them get taken up by the kidneys. This is one of the key things. Huh? Uh, it, it would be fantastic if you, for the lung, for instance, could give it using an inhaler. Yeah. Uh, not only because, you know, that's easy, the patient can do it themselves. Um, you can repeatedly do it, like, uh, you know, you use uh, inhalers for COPD or whatever. Uh, so that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, a, a second thing is, um, you also have to prevent uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the damage of the RNA by the body. And, and I know you, you do chemical modifications. C could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because if the RNA is taken apart, it can't do its uh, effective job. And, yeah, it's very true. Um, RNAs uh, are naturally uh, flowing within, uh, are, are in cells, are within, uh, within the blood, uh, what else not. Uh, the body is full of uh, proteins called exonucleases and endonucleases. And these are uh, proteins that are uh, constantly looking for RNAs and ready to, to degrade them, to break them down. Uh, this is important. It's, a, it's an important process and RNA isn't meant to stay, a lot, stay around very long. What we do with the oligonucleotides, the RNA-based uh, 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 molecules that we, uh, or therapies that we generate, we introduce uh, various modifications that stabilize them versus these, these nucleases. Uh, one of these is called a phosphorothioate, um, which was uh, identified back in the 70s. And if you introduce this into the, the backbone, the so-called backbone of your, your therapy, it makes them uh, quite uh, nuclease resistant. The other ones are uh, various modifications to what the, the two prime uh, sugar moiety. So this is part of the, the nucleo base. And then what you get is uh, that you have, uh, for example, an OME or an MOE. Uh, these are modifications that you can introduce, also LNAs. Mm -hmm. And by introducing these at specific positions, you can very much stabilize the uh, oligonucleotides and they can be present in your body for uh, weeks to months. Okay. understand this correctly, um, you're creating a therapy that, that solves inside the body, like uh, uh, a pill that you put into water and slowly dissipates. Um, but but and, and if I take an ibuprofen, there's a small cell or membrane around it so that it doesn't solve immediately in my stomach, but solves slowly so that it can do its work. Is that similar to what you just described on methods to keep your RNA uh, stable, but then more on a mo molecular level, of course? Yeah, it's, it's quite comparable for sure. I mean, this, uh, as is, these RNA molecules uh, uh, are very readily dissolved in, 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 in solution. Uh, when we inject them intravenously, for example, into the blood, they'll get very uh, rapidly taken up by, for example, the kidney, as well as other uh, organs to, to much lesser degrees. But this is definitely the idea. You're, you're basically uh, extending 
their lifespan within a human by making these modifications. Again, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, there, there was some alarming situation that the level of antibodies in uh, virus-infected patients was going down. And, and people were worried, uh, you know, oh, antibodies are not the solution. What was forgotten is that there's also a T-cell memory effect. And, and that is important because at the next trigger, the, anti the, the antibody will be produced again. Uh, back, back to your technology. Um, I don't see the memory effect. Or you have, do you have very intelligent way of somehow creating a sort of memory to cope if, if, if the levels are not anymore there? Um, no, I'm not looking at, in that respect, developing something that's going to be a long-term prevention. That's where the vaccines come into play. Uh, what we can do, hopefully, is develop something that will protect people initially from, the, from these diseases. And one more question. Eric, do you see a silver lining in this whole pandemic? I think it's hard in the sense that uh, I think worldwide uh, there's a lot of uh, doom and gloom uh, that comes out of this scenario. We know that we're now uh, encountered for the first time in a long time with a, a pandemic that really changes our, our social interactions uh, um, and how uh, people experience uh, freedom in that sense. But I would argue at the, the scientific level that there's definitely a... Uh, a, a, a real silver lining that's come out of it, and that, that is the, uh, the sense of collaboration that's come out of it, and uh, the, the community as a whole, uh, which is generally quite protective of the information that they uh, have, have uh, um, developed, the tools that they're uh, identifying to uh, potentially move the field forward. Companies are uh, always very uh, standoffish in terms of uh, sharing that with the community. Uh, there's always this first uh, uh, idea of, uh, well, patent first, then share. Uh, pu publish first, then share. But now uh, we see that in the field that you know, there's, there's uh, bioarchives, med archives, chem archives, and scientists as well as uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, clinicians are all dumping this information as quickly as possible onto these openly accessible uh, platforms for everyone to use the information and try and get a therapy uh, for this uh, for this virus. And that's very different. And I think that uh, Hans uh, can definitely uh, uh, agree with me on this one. That's very different than how science in the past was uh, was performed absolutely absolutely i mean in the, in the last years of my career going to the meetings you hear only the things that have been published and the real novel stuff is not being communicated no as a secondary effect uh, i expect that regulatory affairs will will be less if you see that vaccines are now going into phase two and phase three trials after record time uh, let's not forget the safety of course but that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And also, and we're pleased with that, government will put a lot of money, hopefully, in fundamental research. Absolutely. And we will create the infrastructure not, not to be caught again by a pandemia and have the facilities to, to do the research and effectively treat patients. I fully agree. I, I think that as a, 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 the additional silver lining indeed is that there's a potentially a newfound 
appreciation for for research and I don't say that as a, just as a scientist I think it's um, as a society as a whole that there's a, a, a appreciation now for the art of discovery for innovation and what else not um, and also the idea that um, there's going to be money put into uh, expanding the medicine cabinet uh, um, in that sense for targeting not just coronavirus but the lessons learned for this from this will benefit uh, the Lhasas and the Dengue's and uh, the yellow fevers and the list goes on. There are many other uh, viral uh, situations as well as bacterial infections that are highly problematic and I think that there's a, an awakening that has happened in that respect to the fact that we are have at this moment insufficient means of dealing with these situations and we need to expand that toolkit. So. This uh, final silver lining is a fantastic closure of this, uh, this uh, meeting. Uh, thank you very much, Eric, for talking to us. Thank you very much, uh, Hans and Joop, for the invitation and uh, looking forward to uh, discussion further.